It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series through the book of Colossians. And today we'll be turning on to chapter 2. Maybe you were like, are we ever going to get out of chapter 1? Yes, we have. We've made it. We're on to Colossians chapter 2, looking at the first five verses of Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Well, next month will mark 25 years, believe it or not, from one of the most significant events in television history. All over the world, whether you are on the West Coast, Midwest, or East Coast, if you're watching your television that afternoon and evening, no matter what your regularly scheduled programming was, it broke away to a shot of a white Ford Bronco driving down a highway in Los Angeles. Now, before you Google it, it was 25 years ago, believe it or not. Some of you are like, no, that was last week. No, it was 25 years ago. And, and what became a national phenomenon, did you know that more people watched the car chase, 95 million, than watched the Super Bowl that year? It was the most watched event on television that year. And of course, as, as I was a younger kid growing up in California at the time, and all I knew is some football player was running from the cops. I was like, why do they want a football player? I'm confused. But of course, then the trial happened after that, the O.J. Simpson murder trial. And the trial has been said by some newspapers to be the most publicized trial in American history. As it went on day after day after day for months, all broadcast on television. And as the prosecution was building its case, it of course collected evidence, right? Evidence to present what they believed why O.J. Simpson was guilty. And one of those key pieces of evidence were gloves, right? Gloves, one of which was found at the site of the murder, the other of which was found outside his house. And there's this culminating scene in the trial that's been redone over and over in, in movies and in television remakes of the trial, of the moment that O.J. Simpson goes to put on those gloves that they said were his and they didn't Right? They didn't go on. And if you remember the trial, you certainly remember this piece of evidence that the prosecution thought was so strong suddenly wasn't working how they wanted. And even though they believed they had enough evidence, ultimately, as we know, he was acquitted of murder. See, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has been kind of laying out an argument for Jesus. He's been laying out an argument for who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1. See, one of my seminary professors used to always, at the beginning of class when we would start a new book, he would say, before we get into the book, let's just look at how many times words occur in a book. Because sometimes that gives you a good idea of what the main theme is. Well, let's look at some of the repeating words in Colossians chapter 1 that refer to Jesus. So in Colossians, just in chapter 1, Jesus is referred to three times by name of Jesus. Christ is referred to eight times, as Lord twice, as Son once, but then as the pronouns of he, him, his, and whom, all throughout chapter 1, total 22 times. Meaning that in just Colossians chapter 1 alone, Jesus is mentioned 36 times. Jesus is mentioned 36 times. And at the end of Colossians chapter 1, which we covered two weeks ago, Paul is giving a defense of his ministry and what it is that he is seeking to do. 
And as we turn to chapter 2 this morning, in these first five verses, Paul is laying out and he's praying that these evidences that would be true in their lives that they know Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, he said who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for them. And now as we start chapter 2, he wants to lay out these evidences that should be true in their lives if they know Jesus. So if you haven't already, if you would open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we look together this morning to find three evidences that should be true in our lives if we know Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, the town of Colossae was located in what is modern-day Turkey today. And Laodicea was a more significant town that was approximately 12 miles away. So this was kind of the neighboring town to these people. In fact, we know from the end of the book in Colossians chapter 4, they're told that after they've received this letter and read it in their church, that they're to bring it to Laodicea so that they can also read this letter to their church as well. And Paul wants them to know that this struggle that he's had both for the Colossians, for those at Laodicea, and for everyone else, probably specifically in that region, who he has never met. And when Paul talks about a struggle here, it's interesting because as we've talked about before, Paul didn't start this church. He's never met the Colossians. Yet his prayers for them are so heartfelt and deep that he describes his prayer life for them as a struggle on their behalf that he is struggling for them. So what is he deeply struggling for them? Verse 2 says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This first evidence, the first evidence of knowing Jesus is that the church is to be united in love. The first evidence that Paul is looking for in the Colossians is that their church would be united in love. And as they are united in love for each other, that's an evidence that they truly, <coughs> they truly know Jesus. See, a love in the church is to lead to unity in the church. Love and unity are two things that have to coincide. You can't be united with someone else if you don't love them. And quarterly, if you love someone, if you love others, not just how we would say love, but how God defines love as self-sacrificial, as serving, then unity will happen from there. This idea I love of being knit together in love. It's an idea of not just one cord, which could be easily broken, but together that the church should be united and tied together and that in their unity of love for each other, they find their strength. Notice what he says happens when they will be united and knit together in love. That upon that, he says in verse 2, in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See, a result of being united to other believers in love is a greater assurance and knowledge of God that's impossible to have 
outside of that unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. When we often think of an assurance of salvation, if someone were to ask you, are you sure you're going to heaven? Do you have assurance? We often think of assurance as an individual exercise which each person has to work out by themselves. And there's a sense that that is true, that it is something that each person needs to wrestle with. It is a personal relationship with God. But assurance of who God is and his work in the world and his work in our lives is not just an individual thing, but it's a corporate thing as well. Assurance of salvation isn't achieved just on your own, in your own deep study of God's word, but you actually can only experience an assurance of salvation from God when you are united to other believers in love. See, there is an assurance of God that only comes from being united to the people of God. There is an assurance of who God is and what he's done in the world that can only come if we are united to the people of God. See, in a lot of different areas in our lives, we experience assurance from something, not because of some intellectual knowledge that we have, but because of a relationship of someone who's gone through, who's been through something that we haven't yet experienced. So a few months ago, my wife and I were able to go to Hawaii on vacation, and it also happened to be January, which in and of itself is amazing not to be in Chicago in January, but to be in Hawaii. And one of the things that my wife wanted to do for her birthday we were celebrating was to go scuba diving. I'm not much of a thrill seeker, so I said, okay, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. But if I'm honest with you, I was a little nervous. Now, I wasn't nervous because I would be in the middle of the ocean and there wouldn't be land right next to me and I couldn't touch the bottom. I actually have done a lot of swimming in open water and I was fairly comfortable with that idea. But I was kind of nervous with this thing. What happens if you're like 20 feet, 30 feet under the water and suddenly like your tank stops working, right? Like you can't just go to the surface and breathe. That's a long ways up there. And so I was kind of getting some anxiety and some nerves about what was going to happen. But if you've ever gone scuba diving, you know that you don't just show up for your first time, they give you the gear and say, good luck. No, they give you a guide, an instructor. And we went, Kristen and I went, and we had our own guide and our own instructor who said, I will be with you the entire time. And we were on the boat together, and he helped us get our equipment on. And I knew I had the gear on right, not because of any study I'd done, but because the guide was with me, and that gave me assurance. As we went down into the water, and he taught you how to use the regulator, I had assurance that it would be okay, not because of something that I had done, but because I was with someone who knew what was going on. When we started to go underneath the water, and you're breathing for the first time under the water through the tank, I still had assurance because of the person that I was with. As we went through the bottom and saw the beautiful things on the reefs on the bottom of the ocean, I still had assurance because of the person I was with. As I started to come up and suddenly my stomach started getting nauseous and I felt like this queasy feeling, I was a little nervous, but I still had assurance because of the person I was with. As I lost my breakfast 15 feet underneath the top of the ocean, I was very nervous, but I still had assurance 
because of the person I was with. Before I knew what was happening, the regulator was back in my mouth and I was taken care of and cared for. Not because of something that I had done, but because I had assurance that I would be fine, not because of something that I had done, but because of who I was with. See, we can have assurance of God's faithfulness. There's an aspect of assurance of God that we can only have that comes from being united to other believers in love. Can we have an assurance that God would provide for us even in the midst of cancer? Yes, we can, because we've been united in love to brothers and sisters who have walked that journey. Can we be assured of God's presence and goodness even if we were to have some chronic illness and debilitating disease for the rest of our lives? Yes, we can because we've walked and we've seen people. We've been united to those who have done that. Can we be assured of God's goodness and love even when the ones closest to us pass away? Yes, we can because we've been united in love to those who have gone before and we see their examples for us. See, this assurance that, that Paul encourages the church to have only comes if you are truly united in love to other believers. It only comes through a unity to other believers. Notice he doesn't say that you'll experience the full riches of assurance of understanding when you show up to church once a week or maybe a couple times a month. See, for, for us to get this assurance in our lives that Paul is seeking for, first we need to understand what it means, Paul's vision, the, the gospel's vision of what it means to be the people of God. And the, the Bible often speaks fundamentally different than our understanding. See, it's important for us to understand that the church is not an event we go to, but the family we belong to. We won't experience the assurance that God wants for us if church remains an event that we show up at and then we get what we want and we leave versus if the church is the family of God to which we participate and are a part of. So how do we know if, if we're treating church just as an event versus if the church is the family of God that we belong to? One thing that I think stands out is service, is service. See, an event you show up to, others are there to cater to your needs and you get what you want. But try going home to a family meal and telling someone else to clear your spot on the table. I don't know about my family, but that won't go very well, right? You're not there to be served, you're there to serve as well. And for many of you, you come to this church and maybe many of you have for years and you appreciate the great preaching and the music and so much of what the church offers, but you come and you get what you want and then you leave. And you've never served the church. If you haven't served in the church, church is still just an event you're showing up to for your benefit, and it's not the family that you belong to. When, when church is a family that we belong to, people truly know us at church. People truly know us. You know when you go home sometimes to see family or when family comes to visit, there's like always that aunt or uncle or cousin that you kind of dread because you know they're going to ask you some uncomfortable questions, right? Why does family do that? Family does that because they know who you are, right? They know who you really are. The church is to be the place where people know who you really are. Not how you act for an hour or two a week as you hear, but who you really 
are. It's to be the family of God. Now, I understand what maybe you may be thinking if you're a little skeptical at this point. You're like, you know, it makes a lot of sense for pastors to encourage people to go to church. You could be sitting there thinking skeptically, well, you know, because here's the thing, if, if we all stopped coming and stopped giving, you would be out of a job. And I think that's true. And Pastor Bill has wanted me to make sure that I encourage you to keep coming and keep giving, <laughs> correct? He's nodding his head. Yes, keep coming and keep giving. In a sense, that's true. But I don't want you to miss what Paul argues in this passage. If you just treat church as an occasional thing on your schedule on Sundays, then when it's convenient for you, you'll make it. You're missing out on what God would have for your life. There's an assurance of your faith, of your walk with God, that only can come through a unity that's experienced, that we can experience only at the church as we are united to one another in love. So for your own spiritual well-being, be united to other people, be united to the church in love. He continues to the second evidence in chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes this. To see here, looking back at verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul uses this language of mystery sometimes throughout the New Testament. He's used it in chapter 1 and now again in chapter 2. When Paul refers to Jesus as the mystery of God, he's not saying that Jesus is confusing or that you can't figure him out. What he's saying is that one time it was something in the historical past that was hidden, that was hidden from what was going to happen, God's plan, but now has been revealed. That Jesus is the mystery that was hidden, but now in Jesus Christ, he has been revealed. And in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, everything you need for right living is found in Jesus. Knowledge, everything you need for right belief is found in Jesus. See, the second key, the second evidence that we know Jesus is that the church is focused on Jesus. The church is focused on Jesus. I love this language here, that Jesus is, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures. See, imagine if someone came to you this afternoon and gave you a treasure map and said, if you follow these instructions, you will receive un like unsurpassable treasure. Suddenly the rest of your afternoon plans don't seem very important. You're calling off work tomorrow. Why? Because you've found treasure. And when you found something that's worth treasure, that's, that's valuable, it's worth your singular pursuit and passion to find it and to go after it. See, this is how Jesus described the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered it up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This singular pursuit and passion in joy because he's found a treasure that's beyond comparison to everything else that could be offered him. He has this singular focus to do whatever it would take to find and acquire this treasure. That's the kind of singular pursuit and focus that we, the church, are to have on Jesus. 
See, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is all you need. And the Colossian church was getting bombarded by people who were saying, okay, yes, Jesus, but what about adding this? Maybe add this extra on top of it. And oftentimes, false teaching can come into our lives, not because people are taking away Jesus, but it's easy to try and add to it. And Paul wanted to affirm to them that Jesus is, in fact, all they needed for wisdom and for knowledge. It was to be their singular focus. The similar idea is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says this, to let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes, not to be dissuaded side to side, but that our singular focus and passion would remain on none other than Jesus Christ himself. See, have you ever been somewhere where someone was distracted off of what they should have been focusing on? I've been there a lot. A few weeks ago, I was driving down the Kennedy Expressway, which could be aptly named the Kennedy parking lot for the time I was on it, um, as I was headed down towards church on a weekday morning. And suddenly, as I was just crawling along in traffic, I heard a horn honking. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I hear a horn honking, the first thought in my mind was, what did I do? Right? But, but it actually wasn't something, I'm, like, I'm literally going two miles an hour behind, I can't do anything right now. And then I realized this wasn't one of those like, kind beeps, like, hey, look out. This was an angry honk. Have you ever noticed how you can just tell an angry honk? Like there's a tone of the honk that's somehow different. You can just tell. And I looked off to my right, and there was a car that while he was honking, was slowly going like this and going off to the right, and he pushed a car off and cut him off so the car entirely stopped onto the shoulder. Something must have happened, he must have gotten cut off or something, but this guy was angry and upset and honking the horn, pushed this guy right off the road. To which then he swerves through traffic and gets right on my bumper. I'm like, oh boy, what is this? And then as, not, now I'm not so much focused on the car ahead of me, I'm looking behind me. And what do I look as I look in my rearview mirror and I see this behind me? I see someone driving their car and simultaneously while driving, I see their phone held up like this while they're driving down the Kennedy Expressway. And I'm thinking, I don't think that's legal. I don't think that's smart. I don't think you should be doing that. It's one thing to try and text and drive or to voice text or to listen, to make a phone call. He's literally holding his phone up above the dashboard while he's driving down. And I was so nervous that he was behind me. Why? Because A, he clearly likes to cut people off onto the side of the highway. But B, he was distracted. And I didn't know if he would see when I stopped, if he would see in time, because his focus wasn't where it should have been. Likewise for us, there can be things in our lives that distract us from where our focus should be. There are things in our lives that can come up that would distract us from Jesus. What are some of these distractions that there may be? For many of us, perhaps money can be a distraction. The pursuit of money, how we're going to spend our money, time spent worrying about money. So many of us, if we were to be honest with our hearts and with ourselves, 
We're fixing our eyes on money and materialism to fix our needs rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus. And money is distracting us from the work that God would have for our lives. Another distraction that's so prevalent in our world is media. Is media, right? I was reading a book a couple weeks ago that said, and I forget where he had the study from, but he said the average person picks up their phone 18,000 times a year or every about four minutes of their waking lives. Every four minutes of their day, they're picking up their phone. And this isn't like, oh, those young kids, they are on their phones so much. It's, it's all generations are doing this. And we are wired for distraction in our world today as our phones beep and buzz, pulling us away. And this idea of distractions is not something new. C.S. Lewis wrote about it in the screw tape letters to, to one of the, the ideas to a demon trying to, to get a Christian off of his life. He says, if you can't get him into major sins, just distract him. Just distract him away from what God would have for him by whatever technology you can. A third distraction that takes our eyes off of Jesus is me. Not like me, but you, yourself. Your own restlessness, your own selfishness distracts you from fixing your eyes on Jesus. And so often we can be so focused on ourselves and what we want that we're not looking to Jesus to provide for each and every one of the needs that we would have. Paul continues in this passage in verse chapters four, excuse me, chapter two, verses four and five. And he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is actually the first time that Paul specifically mentions false teaching that's come in, and he will more specifically address it as we go throughout the rest of the book. So it says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The third evidence of knowing Jesus is that the church is firm in its faith. The church is to be firm in its faith. When Paul writes here that they are to have good order, good order, it doesn't mean the order of service, but what, what he's talking about is the conduct of their lives, that their behavior, their lifestyle is one that matches what God would have for people to follow after Jesus. They have proper conduct and living. And he also rejoices that he sees their firmness of faith, that they have a faith that is steadfast. It's lasting. It's not wavering from side to side, but it's a strong faith. In warning here in verse 4 against false teaching, <laughs> scholars note that it's not likely in how he talks that false teaching has yet infiltrated the church but he's actually writing to prevent them from falling into error. One commentator says that Colossians is a vaccination against false teaching. It's to prevent them from falling into it. And he commends them on the firmness of their faith because the time to address false teaching was before it had infiltrated into their lives. The time to address the, the firmness and the foundation of their faith was while it was still solid and before it had started to fall apart. See, they, 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 Paul could look at them and say, your faith in Christ has a firm foundation. That that foundation was secure and solid and would withhold through whatever may come. A few months ago, 
one of the, the major roads in Chicago was shut down as Lakeshore Drive northbound over the river had a little crack in the foundation. And while this may have caused a traffic headache for the, the tens of thousands of people that drive Lakeshore Drive every day, you can see that when they said there's a little crack in Lakeshore Drive, they were being kind to the size of that crack. That looks pretty significant if you're to drive your car over it. And while it was obviously shut down the route, why did, why did they shut it down? The bridge hadn't fallen apart. No one had died. Well, because before the, the whole bridge collapsed, it was important to address the foundation of the bridge that it wouldn't just fall down from there. When we think of being firm in our faith, having a foundation that's firm in faith, what are cracks that could come into our lives, that could seep in, that would crack the foundation of the faith that God has for us? A first crack that could come into the faith foundation of our lives is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin will lead us away from a life of firm faith and godliness. See, when we live life with unconfessed sin, it shows that we lack an appreciation and really an understanding of the grace of God in our lives. It shows that we lack our need for God. We think that we're fine how we are. And it ultimately can lead us to actually living a life where we make more excuses for sin than we make more repentance for sin in our lives. See, the church is to be a confessing place. Confession is often in the evangelical world something we say that's how we start a relationship with God. You confess your sins. And yes, you do when you start a relationship with God. But then you confess your sin the next day and the next day and every day onward. And if we live our lives with unconfessed sin in them, we are inviting cracks into the foundation of our faith that could ultimately have devastating consequences if we leave it unaddressed. Another crack that can come in our faith is ongoing conflict. Ongoing conflict, and I'm thinking here specifically in the church, that this place that's supposed to be described in the, the unity of love that we have for one another. Now, I don't think all conflict is a sign of a crack in our faith. Um, I think we are so different, and so many of us come from so many different backgrounds and ages and demographics, and from all over the world, that there are sure to be differences of opinion and thought amongst us. But there's a difference between getting in conflict with someone and having ongoing conflict in the church. See, ongoing conflict in the church shows a sense of pride amongst people. It shows that they think their way is better than others and they know what's right. That means other people must be wrong. There's an arrogance that describes those who would be in ongoing conflict. Not only that, but it shows a lack of forgiveness for others. That when Jesus has called us to forgive others as God has forgiven us, if we are in ongoing conflict, it's clear we haven't often forgiven those with who we've disagreed and how we've disagreed with them. And if we allow ongoing conflict rather than seeking repentance and reconciliation in the body of Christ, it's a crack in the foundation of our faith. A third crack in the foundation of our faith can be a lack of spiritual disciplines. A lack of spiritual disciplines in our lives. Spiritual disciplines, I mean spiritual habits. Things that you can do on your own to, to grow and mature in your relationship with God. Prayer, Bible reading, worship, solitude, 
listening to God. These are spiritual disciplines that we are to practice if we're to have a sure faith foundation. It's not that if you forget to read your Bible one day, you have some massive crack in your faith. That's not, it's not some ritual that you have to keep. But oftentimes, the slide towards sin in our lives correlates with a slide away from disciplines of spiritual maturity. We often slide towards sin when we slide away from reading God's word and from prayer in our lives. Paul prayed. He struggled in prayer that this church, the Colossian church, would be one that would be known for these evidences of knowing Jesus in their lives. That in their midst, these characteristics would be true. If your life was put on trial today, what evidence would be found in your life that you know Jesus? When people look at this church, what evidence is there to the world and to those around us that we are people who truly know Jesus? Are we united in love to other believers? Or is this just a place we show up to when it's convenient on a Sunday? Are we singularly focused on Jesus? That he would be the one we fix our eyes to despite all the distractions that the world would offer to us? And are we firm in our faith? Are we firm in the foundation of faith that God has given us, not wavering from side to side, but steadfast no matter what may come our way? It's my prayer and it's Paul's prayer for this people that our lives and our church would be convincing evidence that we do indeed know Jesus. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and that we can know you through him and his sacrifice for us on the cross and his resurrection. God, I pray that this church and that our lives would be an evidence for the faith that we say we possess, that it would be seen in our unity, it would be seen in our love, it would be seen in our focus on you and the steadfastness of our faith. That may these things be true in each of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.